Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Robcast. This is episode 210, Jesus H. Christ, and this is part two, 66 words. Uh, I'll be on tour this week, uh, Cleveland, Columbus, and Pittsburgh. I see you, and I'm coming your way. And then in a couple weeks, Atlanta and Nashville, we are coming your way. Pete Rollins will be opening. It's the Holy Shift Tour. All that info is at my site. And then there's uh, a few tickets left for the November two-day here in Los Angeles at the Improv. Um, the event is called A New Mind, and it's all new uh, content teaching ideas for me on... In some ways, it's like thinking about thinking. Um, all of the hardware and structure and assumptions and expectations that we have floating around our heads and how that so profoundly affects and drives what we do in the world. And uh, so, a new mind, there'll be some surprise guests. And then, honestly, this thing happens. when It's like when you Robcast peoples all show up from around the world in the same room for two days. I'm telling you, there's like a magic alchemy that happens. It's very hard to explain, but it, uh, it um, yeah, it's profound. So all that info, details, tickets, et cetera, are at my site as well. But now, let's do part two. Last episode was Jesus H. Christ, part one. Now let's do part two. I've actually, since part one, uh, tweaked the subtitle a bit. So it's now, because uh, this was originally a book that sat in my laptop for years, um, but now, if it, think about it like a book. The title is Jesus H. Christ. The subtitle now is The Man, The Mystery, The Middle Initial. <laughs> I like that. That is coming together. That's the beauty of doing this first draft, essentially, in public, is you're tweaking it on the fly, but I like that. Jesus H. Christ, the man, the mystery, the middle initial. Now, that first episode, in many ways, was like an intro, like an intro to the book. So uh, the question that I, that I was working through is then where to begin? Like, where to begin essentially the body of the book? And I was thinking that at some level, what I've always taken great joy in is showing people something that they saw themselves as being familiar with something they're like oh yeah i know that and then showing actually there's a whole world right there within that that you didn't see um, and i would argue culturally at this point in time jesus for so many people jesus h christ is so uh apparently familiar and yet i would simply argue not um that there's a whole world here of unfamiliarity that people just haven't Heard. So I was thinking, where should I start like the body of the book? And then I was realized, oh, with the most familiar Jesus H. Christ thing ever. So in the Gospel of Matthew, it's also in another gospel, uh, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. And by the way, it was very common in the first century. One of the questions you would ask a rabbi is, Rabbi, teach us to pray. And then the rabbi would begin praying, but the prayer would be a way of showing you how that rabbi saw things, that rabbi's yoke, that rabbi's um, system of interpreting Torah to show you what matters most, how to live your life. So one rabbi um, might say what matters more than anything is, is how you treat the poor. One rabbi might say intellectual rigor is the first thing, because if you don't think right, everything else will fall apart. Another rabbi might simply say joy, dancing, 
feasting, celebrating the goodness of creation. So the question, Rabbi, teach us to pray, uh, would often be responded, the rabbi would respond by then praying and essentially showing you, this is how I see things. So when Jesus says to his disciples, this is how you should pray, that's a very first, a very standard first century thing. But then uh, Jesus teaches them this prayer, our Father in heaven. By the way, the Greek there is literally Father of us. So Father of us, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, before we go any further, a bit about words, because I can assume, I assume that some of you are already immediately twitching at the idea of God being a father, because the prayer starts uh, our father or father of us. And the idea of God being a father, God being a man, perhaps some of you are already like, wait, 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 wait. And obviously you've picked up on the, on the fact that in uh, my teachings, writings, tours, etc., I don't refer to God as a he. So let's talk about that before we go any further. First, when you are talking about the divine, the infinite, the ineffable, the numinous, the unbound, the unborn, the ultimate, the eternal, the depth beyond depth, uh, usually called God, that of which none greater can be conceived. When you're talking about source, when you're talking about the energy, the glue of the universe, what you have is metaphor and image and picture. That's what you have to work with. What you have is your experience of the world and then you place something beside this concept idea of called God, and you say, it's like that. You say, God is like the wind, uh, a warrior, a mother, a father, a sculptor, a fire, a judge, a creative force. That's what we have to work with. We only have our experiences. So, People have been doing this for thousands of years across a massive array of traditions and backgrounds, essentially taking their experience of the world and then when talking about the divine God, the ultimate, that which is beyond any conception, and saying, uh, like that. So when the prayer begins, Father of us, yes, it is patriarchal. It is a male image. This is a first century Jewish rabbi located in a particular time and space, just like every other person everywhere. Uh, so yeah, it, it does reflect a patriarchal male, in some ways male-dominated culture. It's reflective of the world it comes from. Although you could also, I would argue that the term is uh, very inclusive, that in many, many places father, uh, we would say like one small step for man, one giant step for mankind. When we use the word mankind there, uh, people would be referring to all people. So the, the term there is often inclusive. So father would be always speaking of father and mother, would be a way of speaking of parent um, in that time, in that place. But I would actually argue there's something far more interesting going on here. Because in the first century, to speak of a father, mother, parent, a father-mother-parent wasn't just a biological relationship. The father-mother-parent 
was the person who runs the household. And in the Jesus tradition, in the Jewish tradition that Jesus came out of, the earth was understood to be God's house. So like in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Or like in uh, Leviticus 25, the land is mine and you reside in it as a stranger. Or, and I love this line from the Psalms chapter 50, I have, this is uh, like the poet speaks on behalf of God. I have, no, I, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. And then I love this line. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world is mine and everything that is in it. So for a first century Jewish rabbi to speak of the father of us, the father, mother, parent, of us is to speak of the one who owns and controls this larger household we know to be the world. It's a communal phrase. And the idea of talking about a house then would be talking about the running of this house in a particular way. So in some ways you could say, it's almost like Jesus says, begin your prayer by saying to the one who owns cares for and runs and sustains the house. Now, by the way, side note, of course, uh, and those of you who run a household, how the house is run is a vital issue of ultimate importance. Think about your own running of a household. It's about food, debt, fairness, equality, compassion, generosity, discipline. Uh, It's about running the house in a sustained way in which everybody has enough. And by the way, this ordering of the household, the ancient Hebrew word uh, is justice. Uh, Justice. Sometimes the word righteousness is used in tandem with the word justice. The Hebrew words are mishpah and zedekah. So uh, in the Hebrew tradition, We all live in a house, God's house, and the ordering, the justice, the compassion, everything surrounding the ordering of this house is of utmost importance. The whole Torah, first five books of the the Bible, again and again and again, how is the place run? Who is in uh, a tenuous situation? Who is most vulnerable? Who is in the most desperate shape? Who has plenty that can share with those don't have enough? Who's getting lost? Who's getting stepped on? Uh, These are the issues at the forefront in Jesus' day. So it isn't just about who runs the households, but it's even more basic than that. There's this great line in the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah says, woe to those. And Jesus and his people would have been familiar with this. Um, text. Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say, the potter has no hands? Woe to those who say to their father, what have you begotten? Or to their mother, what have you brought to birth? By the way, these images of the potter, the father, the mother, these are all images the prophet is using poetically to refer to the divine. So once again, this inclusion of mother 
and father. But, but in this case, what the prophet is speaking of is that the one who runs the house is the one who built the house, the one who brought it into existence. So this life that you and I have in this house, it flows from something. It flows from somewhere. It flows from someone. It is a gift that we receive. Uh, when you took your first breath, that is a gift. The breath you just took, a gift. You are the recipient of this extraordinary gift of life itself. The universe has been generous with you. Before anything else can be said about any one of us, we are the recipients of an overabundant, overflowing act of generosity, which I think is all of the people I've interacted with over the years who have gone through tremendous trauma, tragedy, suffering. It's like you have to, you absorb that, you feel it, you grieve, you weep, you're angry, you shake your fist at the heavens, you give it all its proper expression because you're human and you need to, otherwise it's stuffed down in there. But what I've observed is how many people at some point after working through all of the very real human emotions of difficulty, suffering, it's so interesting to me how many times people will tell some version of the story in which, and then one day they got up and thought, but I'm here, I survived, I'm still breathing. It's like the gift keeps giving. So in spite of all the ways that the world feels unfair, all of the betrayal, loss, injustice, every reason any one of us have to say, come on, house, goodness, seriously, uh, there is this truth that is the truth that undergirds everything else. The first word about any of us is not everything that's gone wrong. The first word about any of us is that before anything, we received this extraordinary generous gift of life itself. In some ways, the prayer begins to begin the prayer, Father of us. Uh, in some ways, it's you begin the prayer by acknowledging source. I'm here. This is, before anything else, a gift. And I begin by returning to that primal, original impulse of gratitude for the gift. So when a first century Jewish rabbi says, Father of us, he's talking about you and I living with a particular sense of gratitude, living with an understanding that this world that we call home inherently has meaning. How we conduct ourselves, how we tread in the house, how we treat others in the house, how we take care of ourselves and each other, our wonder and awe at the transcendent mystery of it all it all fundamentally, inherently matters. The great Abraham Joshua Heschel said, the meaning of awe is to realize that life's, life takes place under wide horizons, horizons that range beyond the span of an individual life or even the life of a nation, a generation, or an era. Awe enables us to perceive in the world intimations, intimations of the divine, to sense in small things the beginning of infinite significance, to sense the ultimate in the common and the simple, to feel in the rush of the passing the stillness of the eternal. Now, I know 
if you're driving, doing the dishes, if you're working out, you're like, wait, 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 what? I know. I probably should read the last part of that again. Awe enables us. This is Heschel. Awe enables us to perceive in the world intimations of the divine, to sense in small things the beginning of infinite significance, to sense the ultimate in the common and the simple, to feel in the rush of the passing the stillness of the eternal. So once again, when Jesus H. Christ says, oh, you want to know how to pray? Here's how you should pray. Begin your prayer, Father in heaven, Father of us, Mother, Father, Parent of us. This is the prayer to the one who builds, creates, owns, runs, and cares for the house, the house being the world that you and I know to be home. And the question about anyone who is responsible for a house is, is it being run well? Does everyone have enough? Is everyone safe? Are things properly distributed? So the prayer begins, our Father in heaven. Now let's move to the in heaven part. There exists an ideal. That, that is what I would be, that's the first thing when it comes to this phrase in heaven, our Father in heaven. There exists an ideal, a realm, a place, a dimension where things are as they should be. So when Jesus teaches to pray, our Father in heaven, undergirding this entire first line is the conviction that there exists a reality not confined to our narrow understanding of what reality is, not confined to our limited comprehension of what is, not hemmed in by the limitations of what you and I know to be this world and our existence in it. You see why this is so incredibly important? Is imagine if I were to tell you this is the best it's ever going to be. Your life, this is the best it's ever, actually you passed the best your life is ever gonna be. There will be no more improvement from here on out. If you were to ask me about our current political situation, what if I said, oh, politically, it's only gonna get worse. We peaked. We're now on the backside. It's just downhill from here. What if I said to you, your best days are behind you? Yeah. <laughs> what if I said to you, oh yeah, traffic? No one's ever going to solve traffic. The only thing that's ever going to happen to traffic is it's only going to get worse from here on forever. There are no improvements coming. Education, there are no solutions. All that's going to happen is schools are going to get worse. Wealth, the gap between the haves and the have-nots is only going to increase. There is nothing that can be done about it. Homeless, by the way, the estimates are that Los Angeles has 66,000. I've seen 49,000, 60,000, and 66,000 as estimates for the number of homeless in Los Angeles. What if I told you that's only the start? There are no solutions. We're only going to have more and more people without a home. Imagine if I kept insisting on all these things. Oh no, we peaked. All the best stuff is behind us. That, that, would, that would just kill me. I'm sure for you as well. Something within your soul just like dries up. It's like cutting off oxygen. Why? Because you are hardwired for hope. Even if you consider yourself cynical, bitter, jaded, still, you're hardwired for hope. This is why we even use words like cynical, bitter, and jaded. Compared to what? compared to the hope that is deep in our bones. It's easy to get jaded. 
It's easy to get so worn down you can't imagine a better life. So defeated and fatigued you can't even conceive of a better world. This is just how it is. So this prayer begins, Father, Mother, one who runs the household who is in heaven. In heaven is a very Jewish first century way of speaking of a realm, a place, an ideal where things are as they could and should be. So the prayer begins with this affirmation of hope. This place could become more, better, higher, could get closer to the ideal. This prayer does not give up on potentials and possibilities, but affirms them. The last word has not been spoken. The story is far from over. Don't you dare make judgments about something that is still going on. Don't we dare give up on a world that is far from finished. So the prayer is, Father of us who's in heaven, is essentially, Father of us who's in heaven, there is a world that we live in that is unfinished, and we long for it to be more, better, closer to an ideal. And then our Father in heaven hallowed be your name, is the next line. Holy be your name. Now first, this idea of holy is your name. In the ancient world, name was inextricably bound up in identity, essence, and reputation. Like in the book of Proverbs, a good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. Essence your character, your true self is tied up and reflected in your name. So when it says, Father of us in heaven, holy is your name, essentially it's saying something is at stake here. This connects back to the idea of the world as a house. There's a goodness undergirding creation. And this takes us all the way back to the Genesis poem. There is a goodness underneath everything. So how the house is run is deeply and inextricably connected with the name of the one who's in charge of the house. Like if I meet you and you have some kids and your kids are like, like they've got like dead carcasses of animals in their pockets and they're walking around without feet in the winter, you instinctively would see me looking at your kids and you'd be like, yeah, I'm not doing that good of a job of running my house, <laughs> right? So you can see how your reputation, your character is instantly reflected in the running of the house. So when you see those things that make you furious, pollution, hypocrisy, cities being bombed out, refugees fleeing war and oppressive regimes, and we, we see these things and they just, our, our hearts beat, but we're also furious that people would do this to each other. Yeah, yeah, this is because you have some sense that the house should be ordered and run well. And when people are running for their lives, when people don't have enough food, we instinctively know this has something to do with us because as human beings, we're all part of the same house. And how 
the house is run matters. And so when it says, holy is your name, this is about reputation and about how the house is run. And the reason why this is so important is because for a first century Jewish rabbi, he's coming out of a tradition that believed that his people, Jesus saw that his people were here, had been, they called, called is the language they used, to carry this particular name of God to the rest of the world, this particular ordering of the world around justice, peace, and the word they would use is shalom, wholeness, and goodness. In fact, the Ten Commandments, uh, which takes us back to the book of Exodus, these people make a covenant with God. The divine and the human come together. And uh, right around the Ten Commandments, these people are told, Jesus' tribe is told, you'll be a kingdom of priests. Essentially, you're going to show the world a new way to order the world, taking care of the widow, the orphan, the refugee among you, being kind and welcoming to immigrants. And actually, the Ten Commandments, one of the Ten Commandments is, you shall not take the name of the Lord and your God in vain. And uh, for many people, that was like, you know, you shouldn't swear, right? Uh, I would argue that that is a shallow surface reading of that command um, because the you should not take the name of the Lord in vain. The literal Hebrew there translates carry. You shall not carry the name of the Lord in vain. And remember the word Lord there is this word Yahweh, which comes, and this was the name given to the one who rescued these people from slavery. So you've been liberated from your oppression. And now you are to move in the world in such a way that you help liberate others from their oppression in the same way that you receive this grace and mercy. You go and extend this grace, mercy, and generosity to others. And when you do that, then you are carrying this name to the ends of the earth, essentially. So the idea of holy is your name, these people had this belief that they had been called because of this union between the divine and the human to carry this name, this understanding, this new ordering to the ends of the earth. Humanity called to embody the highest divine attributes of love and compassion and justice and fairness and order and thriving that a human being can reflect the divine. A human being can show you what God is like. Do you see how radical these ideas were? Do you see the elevation of human consciousness about what it means to be human? A raising of the dignity and honor of what it means to be a human being. And so when people are like, you should not take the name of the Lord your, your God in vain, is like, oh, you shouldn't swear. No, no, no. This is about conducting yourself in the world in such a way, your actions, the exercise of your energy and power in the world in such a way that the divine and human continue to be brought together. Yeah, there's more to being a human than just getting through the day. So to say, our Father in heaven, holy is your name, uh, this, they understood their God to be holy, and so they understood their calling to be holy. You're, you're here for a reason, for a purpose. This is all about the raising of human consciousness of what it even means to be a human being.
How are we doing so far? We are just scratching the surface. So it says, holy is your name, your kingdom come. Now, this word kingdom, to use this in the, what is it, the third line of a prayer? To use a word in the first century, for a Jewish rabbi to use this word, this is so loaded, dangerous. This is such a political word at that time. The fact that the prayer right away goes from our, our Father, Father of us in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come. Because first off, uh, these Jewish people in the first century had been conquered by the Romans, this absolutely dominant military superpower. The Romans then were essentially ruling from afar uh, through the Herodians, which were a dynasty begun by Herod the Great. Um, and then Herod the Great, when he died in the year four, his kingdom was divided into three. One of his sons, Philip, took a region to the east. Archelaus took uh, Jerusalem, Judea, but that didn't go so well. And then Herod's third son, Antipas, he took over the Galilee region. So when Jesus, a first century Jewish rabbi from Galilee, speaks of a kingdom, the Romans are sort of right there, but it's Herod Antipas who was building his own kingdom and that Jesus' work was done right under the nose of Antipas. In fact, at one point, people come to Jesus and they say, uh, Herod Antipas wants to kill you. Um, actually, we'll have to do a whole episode on that. But Antipas was ruthless, he was violent, and any threat to his kingdom meant you were going to get killed. Antipas, uh, Herod Antipas is the one who killed John uh, the Baptist. So this had already happened, people being killed left and right because they were a threat to his kingdom. Now, a kingdom is about ordering. A kingdom is about using power, force, and violence in order to structure the world to your advantage. That's one way to think about a kingdom. And for many people, that would have been their popular understanding of kingdom. So the first people to hear this prayer, they would have had a popular conception of a kingdom, which was a particular way of ordering the world around greed, dominance, their own humiliation and violence. Once again, the Romans had essentially perfected crucifixion as a way of enforcing the ordering of their kingdom. So when Jesus uses this word, it would have had extraordinary power and energy to it. War, exploitation, agendas that favor some over others, systemic indifference to the plight of those who don't have the advantages of others. So when Jesus says kingdom, he's using a word in a different sort of, he's essentially insisting there's another way to order the world. When Jesus speaks of another way of ordering the world, this is deeply subversive and dangerous to talk this way. So, Father of us in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Uh, I assume that if you heard a, a first century Jewish rabbi talk like that, you'd be like, that guy's going to get himself killed. Um, by the way, we should pause here, uh, and I should talk about the infinite for a minute, because there's a paradox here. Uh, whenever we talk about the divine and the human, there's an unknown mystery to all of life, right? Like people use this phrase, God doesn't fit in a box. Of course not. Um, so when we talk about the divine and human, when we talk about 
prayer. You are talking about the unbounded infinite of the universe. Um, that's hard to get your mind around. But Jesus came from a tradition that was incredibly concrete about the divine. So he came from a long line of prohibitions against dishonest business practices or taking advantage, do not take advantage of somebody financially or allowing the land to rest, living with the soil in a sustainable way. So Jesus didn't really come from a tradition that saw the divine as an intellectual category that you essentially come up with all sorts of doctrines about that you sort of argue with argue about till the end of time. Um, he talked about fulfilling the law, making it speak, putting flesh and blood on it. Um, so Jesus came from a tradition where whatever you have to say about God, what was important is how that affected how you live and how you help order the world so that it's fair and just. So it's about intellectual rigor, it's about your heart, but it's about corporations pouring chemicals into rivers. It's about a widening gap between rich and poor. It's about systems that leave people barely able to pay their bills while others profit off of their desperation. Are, are you with me on this? So this idea and this prayer then of a kingdom coming yeah, this, this would have been both incredibly revolutionary and dangerous and perfectly in keeping with his tradition that always saw that your beliefs, your convictions, your ideas about the divine had extremely practical real-world implications. So then he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, Yes, so good. Okay, first, earth and heaven. The desire in the prayer is that earth and heaven become the same place. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The prayer is not about leaving earth. It's about earth and heaven becoming more and more the same place. Second then, direction. In the prayer, your will be done on earth as in heaven. This isn't about escape. This is not about some other place and some other time. This is not about happens what happens when you die. It's about this world here and now. Third, will. Will is another absolutely fascinating word Jesus would use here. Essentially, your will uh, he's insisting here then that your prayer be ordered, that the universe be bent in a particular direction. Martin Luther King, quoting someone else, talked about how the moral arc of the universe is long and it bends towards justice. Yeah. Yeah, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the prayer is, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, the reason why your will be done is so huge is that the core of the prayer is participation. Yeah, the prayer is, I want to take part in a new ordering of the world. I want the house 
to be managed well. So participation is the engine of the whole thing. There is something to be done here, something for me to do, something for you to do, something for us to do together. And so the God in this prayer is inviting us, waiting for us, calling on us. Yeah, and there's this ideal in there, in heaven, that earth and heaven would be more and more and more the same place. So the prayer has this undergirding conviction that every single one of us have some role to play in this earth becoming more and more and more united and merged with heaven. Yeah, do you see why these... Do you see why these aren't the questions of any one particular religion? Do you see why his prayer, he's talking about what it means to be human. The prayer is almost, uh, one to, to the one who runs the household, I acknowledge there's more to be human. I acknowledge there's a better way to run this place. Please show me my role to play in it. It was a 2008, we had this horrific housing crash. And literally millions of people walk, lost their homes, while at the same time, a number of people profited hundreds of millions of dollars off of the loss of other people losing their homes. This is not a proper ordering of the house. And when you find yourself filled with anger and rage at the injustice of it, the invitation of the prayer is to take all that frustration, anger, rage, watching the news tomorrow, tomorrow morning when you wake up and you see whatever the new headlines are, you take it all and you offer it up. You offer up your life full of imagination and hope about what could be and your role and participation in what could be. In some ways, the first part of the prayer is the antidote to cynicism. It acknowledges that earth is not as it should be. It's brutally honest about that. And then the prayer is, I acknowledge that there is a calling on a human being to help bring about the uniting of heaven and earth. And I want to be a part of it. Help me take all this anger, rage, pent-up energy that's sort of festering under the surface, and I give myself full of imagination. Or I have no imagination. Please give me some imagination. In heaven, I can't even imagine that it could be better. So in some ways, the prayer can be like this desperate, please crack open all that hardness within me and show me just a tiny little bit of what it would look like for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, we're halfway through the prayer. How you doing? <laughs> now, uh, here's a good time to point out just a few structural notes, okay? So, there are three big words in the first half of the prayer, and there are three big words in the second half of the prayer. The first half of the prayer centers around name, kingdom, will. And then the second half of the prayer... Uh, Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts, lead us not into temptation. The second half of the prayer deals around three big words, bread, debt, and temptation. Now that first triad of name, kingdom, and will, 
there is, you probably picked up on it, an ascending progression that's built into those three words. So it starts with name. We acknowledge you as holy source. We acknowledge a kingdom, a new way of ordering things, and then will. We want that to happen. We want to be a part of it. So name, kingdom, and will builds, you could almost say like to a crescendo, like a piece of music. But then the second half of the prayer, bread, debt, and temptation, also has an ascending progression built into it. There's like an expansion built into these triads. It starts with just God and the name God, but by the third word, will, it's the divine and the human partnering together, participation in the making of a new world. Oh, and while we're at it, uh, that first triad, your name, uh, your kingdom, your will, those pronouns, that's about God, but then the second half, our daily bread, our debts, us temptation, the second triad is about us. So the first half is about the divine, the second half is about the human. You're in the first half, our in the second half. It's as if the two halves are talking to each other. So what's interesting is even the way that the poem, poem, is that called a poem? Prayer is structured is as if there's like a, a dialectic, a, an interplay, uh, a call and response. It's like they're talking to each other. Because once again, it's always about the merging of the divine and the human. Oh, and then another thing, in the second half, we're about to get into bread, debts, and trespasses. Um, give us today our daily bread. The give us there is not, pol- uh, how should I say it? It's not polite. It's not like, hey, if you get around to it, we'd really like some bread. Um, In the Greek here, these are what are called imperative forms. That means they're commands. Give us, seriously, give us today our daily bread. They're commands. They're they're intense. (laughs) They're like forceful. Um, This is not a prayer of, and if you get, you know, I just really like, these, these prayers are like, now, here. I want this. Do this. (laughs) I know. Who knew? Now, the prayer continues. Uh, Give us today our daily bread. Now, as you probably guessed it, bread in the first century was a deeply political word. Because once again, how you feed your family, well, that that involves economy, that involves uh, governments and institutions and structures and power. And bread is a very, if you don't eat, you, you don't live. So your life is bound up in this daily provision of bread, which comes from the earth, which is a great mystery and gift from the earth. So uh, give us today our daily bread. Now, first off, a couple notes. The world, the planet, is able to produce enough bread. We know that now, that the world, she is plentiful, the planet the mother, however you want to say it, she's plentiful and generous. The planet is actually capable of producing enough food for all of us. And remember, a major issue in the Bible, a major issue in the running of the house is does everybody have enough? So give us today our daily bread. If there's enough bread and there are people who are hungry, then the issue is distribution. Somebody somewhere is not properly allowing the bread to be distributed. Now, the moment you talk about distribution, 
oftentimes, especially in people who have been fully hijacked with sort of sort of uh, capitalist robots, um, distribution can sometimes set people off, which just shows you how, in many situations, the Jesus movement has been so co-opted by certain business and economic ideas. But in the house, in the Jesus tradition, it was always about, does everybody have enough? And the Caesars and the Herodian dynasty had used bread as a symbol of their power and their ability to, be, to provide. So give us today our, our daily bread has this profound political, in this new ordering, once again, the second half of the prayer is talking to the first half of the prayer. We want to be a part of a proper distributing of the bread where everybody has enough. Now, second, when Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, uses the word bread, remember that he's, uh, it's called principle of first mention. Where in his tradition do we first have stories about bread? And when his people are liberated from slavery, they are given bread to eat in the wilderness. Now, the bread was called manna, and I love the fact that in Hebrew, the, the word manna means, what is it? <laughs> what is it? Well, what do you guys call that? What is it? No, I mean, seriously, what is it? What, it's like a, like, a, like a bad Abbott and Costello. Um, the bread is called, what is it? Because people didn't know what it was. He's reaching back into the history of his people, and he's inviting them to remember that when they were liberated from their slavery, they were provided for. Everything about his people's history was about a new vision for what it means to be human. So over and over again, they're reminded, you were brought out of your slavery. Now, go and help bring others out of theirs. It was always about a fair, just, and equitable word. And so in some ways, what he's doing, and for these people, like when he feeds the 5,000 people, when Jesus does this, you think, why were people out in the wilderness? Why were people wandering way out in the wilderness? Because they were getting bread and lots and lots of people at his time because of the massive debt that had been placed upon them by the Romans and by the Herodians. A lot of people were having difficulty even getting enough bread. There are some estimates that taxation rates in the Galilee region at that time were about 90%. So good, God-honoring Jewish people were having trouble feeding their kids. Bread was a topic at the front of everybody's minds. And essentially, in saying in your prayer, give us this day our daily bread, you would have, in hearing him and being part of his tribe, been reminded of your ancestors and the fact that in their journey and in their struggle and difficulty, they were given enough bread. And the whole thing about manna is you were only given enough for that day. Yeah, there's something here about forgetting your story because for you and I, we made it. We're here today. We're listening. We're breathing. We're alive, which means that all of those times when we were stressed about our daily bread, we somehow got enough that we got to today. So part of the prayer is remembering your own journey in the wilderness. And when you're stressed, when you feel the pressure, when the bills are piling up, to pause and remember, 
give me today this day's bread because I'm here, which means apparently I have gotten enough bread over the years. There's this great line in Proverbs 30, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. So by the way, you can see there where daily bread was actually a phrase. This is not a new phrase Jesus came up with. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. So in the Proverbs tradition, which I assume Jesus would have been familiar with, there was this prayer about give me my daily bread because if I get riches, I may forget. Uh, I may lose the plot. And if I have too much poverty, it may... Uh, cause me to resort to all sorts of actions that would dishonor the name of my God, which again goes back to this idea of carrying around the name. Now we'll come back to that dishonor because that that comes in play at the end of the prayer. Uh, Not too much, not scarcity, and not stockpiling while others don't have enough, but just enough. Now, Let's think about this in terms of the passage of time. Give us this day our daily bread. That's about the present. Enough, enough, enough. I just need enough for today. But then it's followed by forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, once again, whenever you hear a word, ask yourself where else or where did this first arise? Debts was an absolutely massive word that was like a giant base note in Jesus' tradition. So if you go back to like the book of Exodus where it says, chapter 22, if you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal, charge no interest. So the whole thing in Exodus was in your lending and borrowing of money, don't let people get too big of a debt. Leviticus chapter 25, if any of your own people become poor and they sell themselves to you, They're so poor, they literally have to sell themselves to you. Do not make them work as slaves. They are to be treated as hired workers and work until the year of Jubilee, then release them. Now, built into Torah, especially the book of of Leviticus, is this year of Jubilee. Every seven years, everybody's debts are wiped clean. Every seven years, everybody who has sold themselves to somebody or is an indentured servant, they're released. All debts are forgiven. Now, there's no evidence that they actually did this, but um, Deuteronomy 15, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to another Israelite. Yeah, so built into the traditions of Jesus' people were a whole series of commands that every seven years you forgave every debt because everybody would then be set free. Yeah, see, there's this understanding that few things will erode the fabric of society faster than debt. It's not just what it does to the person in debt. It's what it does to the space between people who have debts. Like, you know that offhanded comment where you're like, yeah, so-and-so owes me 30 bucks. And we all laugh about, yeah, they're always, they always 
They're always borrowing money. Like we all laugh about it, and yet there's something within us. Anybody here, you lent money to somebody and they never acknowledged it again, never paid it back? Yeah, debts do something. And when you have tremendous debt, it makes you vulnerable. When you have tremendous debt, like you've loaned somebody a bunch of money, or when you're carrying it around, it makes you vulnerable to resentment, anger, hatred, violence, desperation. Uh, Jesus' tribe had this tradition, there's no evidence they actually did it, of jubilee, where debts get wiped clean. Now, I assume your first question is, wait, wait, wait. So when it says, forgive us our debts, that's about money? Um, because some translations, uh, it seems to be about, you know, like larger debts like sin and such. And I would simply argue, yeah, 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 the whole thing. Money, wounds, sins, what do I need to be forgiven of? What do I need to forgive others for? Um, I have done uh, events over the years with leaders, business leaders, spiritual leaders, creative leaders, and sometimes I'll ask them about the people that they lead. I'll say, do any of you need to forgive the people that you lead? Because when you lead people, they, they might say all kinds of things about you. And it hurts, like a death by a thousand paper cuts. Um, one time I was doing this event, it was spiritual leaders. And I was talking to them about the need to forgive the people who you lead. Um, for all the little weird things they say to you, <clears throat> all the offhanded comments, um, all the ways sometimes you feel judged. And uh, so I handed out paper, and I sheets of paper, and I invited leaders to make lists of specific people they needed to forgive. And I said, how many of you, you put yourself out there and you got shot at? Um, people hid knives in their words. And so now what you actually do is you're not giving them your best because you're holding back a little because when you have given them your best and been totally vulnerable, you've gotten shot at. And so what happens over time is you don't offer people your best. You offer them less and less. And I said, how many of you need to forgive some of the people or all the people that you lead? And I invited them to write the specific names of people that they needed to forgive. And then I took this huge shopping cart and I pushed the shopping cart through the audience while these leaders took these pieces of paper and filled the shopping cart. And I'm telling you, that shopping cart was full. People like, some people were just like sobbing as they put all these sheets of paper with these names on it into the shopping cart as this symbolic act of essentially letting the debts go. Oftentimes, we want something. We want to be forgiven. We want our debts canceled, but we're refusing to pass that to others. And so the prayer is, may I be the kind of person who gives to others what I want given to me, who sets others free in the same way that I want to be set free. It's a prayer to be unlocked, to be released, to enter into a larger flow of giving and receiving. Debts are generally accumulated over time. There, there is a space-time element to this. Debts usually 
happen over time. So they're with you in the present, but they started in the past. They have origins. When did that person wrong you? What did you uh, do to them that makes it so awkward between the two of you? So in some ways, to let the debts go is to clean up the past. So give us this day our daily bread is about present. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who've... That's in many ways about the past. Yeah, so the prayer is, help me be fully present today with enough bread for today. Then, forgive me my debts... Help me not be living in the past. Help me let go of the past. By the way, think of how much energy it takes when you're carrying around debts. And energy is sacred and limited. You only have so much. If you are using sacred, precious energy, life is hard enough, to nurse, harbor, or feed bitterness about debts from the past, you're, somebody else's, they are eroding the goodness of your holy, sacred energies. Yeah, so to forgive, one of the Greek words for forgive means, forgive literally means to send away. You send it away. It may take a while, it's a process, but you start today. And so the bread, debt, and trespasses, bread is help me to be fully present today, not worried about whether or not I'm going to have bread for tomorrow, but fully present with enough for today. Help me to be free from the past and help me to have set to let go of any debts from the past that might be draining all of my energy and life for today. By the way, one more note on debts. And of course, we could go on forever on this. Our forgiving of others is directly connected with our forgiving of ourselves. And our anger with others is directly connected with our own guilt and shame. If you are having trouble for forgiving yourself for anything you have done over the years, uh, if you have a voice in your head that's constantly beating you up and saying all sorts of filling your head with negative uh, monologue, uh, one of the ways to forgive yourself is to begin by forgiving other people. Forgive everybody for everything. Um, that's one of the ways you enter into the flow. And, and what you will notice absolutely 100% for sure is the more you forgive everybody for everything. doesn't mean you condone it. doesn't mean you approve it. Um, it does mean that you will find the forgiving of yourself uh, gets more and more accessible to you. Yeah, bread's about present. Debts, in some ways, is about past. And then the prayer ends, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, lead us not into temptation is about the future. So the first part of the prayer is about name, kingdom, will. Then it moves to bread. It's almost like the first half is we want to participate in a new ordering of the world. How do we do that? Well, very practically, bread, debt, and temptation. You see how this whole thing, it starts giant and divine, and then it moves into very specific and human. Now, what is the lead us not in a temptation? First off, some of you are like, wait, wait, wait a second. Lead us not in a temptation. That implies that God leads us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil or the evil one. Now, uh, 
here's why I would argue this is so huge. In the future, when you find yourself deep in the hole, when you're getting no mercy, when the bills are piling up, when resentment is building, when you find yourself stressing over the news, over the latest presidential tweet, over war, over fake news, when you find there is going to be a temptation in the future to respond to all of that negatively in ways that aren't helpful. You're going to be tempted to lash out. You're going to be tempted to violence of all sorts. You're going to be tempted when somebody owes you to give them the cold shoulder. You're going to be tempted to lie, steal. These are all the temptations that come when we aren't grounded and centered and when we are find ourselves faced with a world that is often not ordered well. And so it's like the prayer says, and as I go into the future, keep me so grounded in today, keep me so free from debts, keep me so calm, still, centered, and serene that I'm not tempted to contribute to the endless cycles of violence that are all around me all the time. Do you see why this is so powerful? is when we get caught up in, well, when we got caught up in the Roman and the Caesars and the Herodian ordering of the world, when we get caught up in the cycles of violence, when we got caught up in other orderings of the world, then we inevitably find ourselves walking into all sorts of new temptations. Think about all the times when today's bread wasn't enough and we needed to stockpile bread and all the stress that came with that. Think of all the debts that others owe us, that we owe others, and, and not sending them away and not forgiving them. Think of all the temptations. You then, you resort to saying, well, we're gonna blackball this person. I'm gonna give them the, I'm gonna shut them out. I'm going to come after them and show them they shouldn't mess with me, all of that. And this is a prayer. And remember, for a first century Jewish rabbi speaking to a group of people who had been conquered by the Romans, there are Roman soldiers marching in their streets. And the resentment, the anger, and there had been a num there were a whole series of uh, violent rebellions against their oppressors. And we know that there were large crowds that wanted Jesus to take up the sword and liberate his people in a violent military fashion from these oppressors. So as the debts are piling up, as a whole way of life is eroding, the temptations to become just as violent as the people doing violence to them were all around them. And the prayer then is, lead, uh, keep me in such a good place that we're not tempted to become just as destructive and violent as the people who have wronged us. Yeah. And there's also, uh, there's also a really, really interesting uh, take that you'll see some people have talked about in regards to how the prayer ends, where lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Um, well, how could God ever lead us into temptation? But some people talk about how, well, that's, the, the godliness and the temptation is what happens when people start using God's name 
to justify all sorts of violence. It'd be like if there was this Christian nation that called themselves a Christian nation and talked about how they were a Christian nation, but then were the like most militarily equipped superpower the world had ever seen and had more nuclear bombs and had more dropped bombs. Like imagine if there was a nation that many people said was a Christian nation, but they're the only nation that had ever dropped like nuclear bombs on actual people. Can you imagine that? And then they said that they were sort of doing this because that was their duty in the world to restore order, but it actually just made the world even more violent. Can you imagine that? <laughs> I know. You can't even really, can't even conceive. But that's actually the temptation lurking in there, would be to use the name of God and to say you were doing it in the name of God, but to simply perpetuate more of the same. The prayer is an alternative vision for life and for the world, for all of us, and a better future. Now, that's a few thoughts about that prayer. So, now, uh, let's just wrap this up with uh, seven things. Number one, this prayer that Jesus teaches is 66 words. Everything we just covered is found in a prayer that is 66 six words. All that. Yeah, astonishing. Second, uh, what you probably picked up on is that the prayer is both personal and communal. It's both about deep individual issues of forgiveness, trust, hope, imagination, but it's also deeply communal and then obviously societal and political. So it's about each of us finding ourselves grounded and centered in an imaginative hope for a new world, and then our practical enacting of it through trust and daily bread, through the forgiveness, through uh, not responding in certain ways, that's both personal and communal. It's like it covers the whole spectrum of what it means to be human. Third, the prayer carries with it a number of understandings about how difficult and sweaty and bloody and challenging the world is. I mean, these words, kingdom, bread, these, these would have evoked powerful images of war, uh, oppression, lack, um, improper, unjust distribution. Uh, these words in this prayer, uh, their own history of liberation from slavery, and then falling back into even more violent patterns of empire building. I mean, this prayer, it acknowledges the difficulty, the obstacles, the sweat and blood and tears of life, but it's also a prayer about not being tossed to and fro randomly. It's a prayer about being grounded and centered and on a path. So it's a prayer that both acknowledges how horrifically unjust and volatile life can be, and it's also a prayer that insists that in the face of all of the struggles of life, you can be calm, centered, serene, that you can actually walk this path. It's like, pray like this. Um, by the way, this is why a tradition can be so powerful, is in 66 words, in, in many ways, you have a whole vision for how to live in the world. Um, by the way, fourth then, if this, if this reading is new, if this reading is 
you haven't heard before. If this reading is like, uh, wait, 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 the Lord's Prayer has political echoes to it. Uh, sure, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Think about it, though. If you've always had enough bread, if you're uh, part of the haves, can you see why you might miss some of the central themes of this prayer? Can you see why people with their stomachs full and their electricity bill paid and gas in the tank and a roof over their head and uh, good jobs, can you see why this prayer would become a nice prayer about how to behave? Can you see how this prayer would be a nice doctrinal affirmation of proper orthodoxy? Yeah, but that's not the, the roots of this prayer. Man, this is a revolutionary Jewish rabbi in a very, very, very combustible at atmosphere helping people get through poor Jewish peasants who are having their whole way of life taken from them by a dominant, violent, global military superpower. You can see how this prayer meant something very different. When they were like daily bread, when they were debts, many of them were losing their family lands. And so they, some, some people literally had had a piece of land in their family for multiple generations, but because of the incredible taxation rates, they were losing family lands. Can you imagine the shame? Some of them were having to, hoping to get hired as a day laborer on the very property that they once owed. So they would go into the middle of town and hope somebody would pick them up and hire them like in a vineyard to work for a day. And sometimes you'd end up working on the vineyard that you once owned. Um, if you imagine the shame and the humiliation and imagine when somebody comes along and says, are you sick and tired of having your property and your whole way of life taken from you? Well, I'm going to give you a sword and we're going to have armed revolution. Can you see why this prayer would have been no? If you pick up a sword and you take part in armed revolution, you're actually continuing the cycles of violence that have eroded our shared life together for thousands of years. This prayer was a nonviolent call. Some have called it a hymn of hope. It was like, no, no, don't let yourself be led into that kind of temptation, especially when people say they're doing it in God's name. No, no, there's a better way. By the way, uh, fifth, that line, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't it interesting, uh, heaven coming here? Yeah, this world becoming more and more like it should be. Notice the direction and the energy. It's about the elevation of this world. Heaven in this prayer is an urgent call to justice and compassion and generosity and nonviolence and beauty and cooperation. Heaven and, and its corresponding hell then as understood by Jesus, become urgent ways of ordering the world. It's like he's doing with that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's alerting us to how much power we have to create hells and heavens on earth. When we don't order the house well, we're bringing hell to earth. And then when we order it well, justice, compassion, equality, we're bringing heaven to earth. It's an elevation of human. It's showing us humans just how much power we have to create the world. 
Yeah, number six. <laughs> we'll just keep going here. I think the verbs are fascinating. Uh, these are fierce verbs in this prayer. Command, they're imperative tenses, they're commands. Give us today our daily bread. Uh, it's as if with these verbs, they got like points on them, spikes on them. They're like, they're, they're pushing, they're poking, they're like agitated. They're calm and centered, but they're also fierce and revolutionary. Uh, it's like the prayer disturbs the comfortable and comforts the disturbed. Yeah, yeah, it's a prayer like this to everybody who doesn't have enough bread. It's like, here, we're going we're gonna to make it, we're going to make it. Here's an invitation to participate. And for everybody who has way too much bread and has become indifferent to the struggles of the world, it's like, you are here to take part in a proper ordering of the house. This is your invitation. This is your calling. There's more to being human than just the accumulation of things. And then one more, shall we? Uh, do you see how many debates and discussions are just ridiculous when you engage with Jesus H. Christ, when you actually read the prayers, the stories, when you actually find them in their original context, they immediately start speaking to our world. Do you see how the discussion shifted? We're no longer talking about who's in and who's out. Come on. This is a prayer for everybody. This is a prayer for all of us about what it means to be human right here and right now. Can you see how something literally thousands of years old, you just dive three inches below the surface, and you're suddenly talking about our world. Father, mother, household manager of all of us humans. It's like an invitation to move beyond the ridiculous narrow categories that so many easily get bound up in. It's an invitation for all of us to step in to our shared calling, this gift, this invitation to together partner for a better world. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about Jesus H. Christ. And he does all this in 66 words. Grace and peace be with you, my friends.